0: Our family is curious. We've traveled far and wide in search of who, what, when, where, and why. What we've learned, we write about. We are writers. Hello, I'm your host, Sarah Marinus van and I'm a writer and the daughter of Pulitzer Prize winner David Marinus. Welcome to the podcast, Ink in Our Blood, where my father and I explore with you our family's culture, legacy, and experiences as writers. In this first season, we'll take a deeper look at how my dad does it, the way he researches and writes in journalism, and his 12 books. And in the final episode, we'll talk about the making of his latest book, A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. If you haven't read or listened to it yet, you can get it at an independent bookstore, Amazon, or my dad's website, davidmarinus.com.
1: Of the writers in this family with ink in our blood, Sarah, you came to the craft later than the rest of us did, but you're also the most multidimensional. Since you started writing, you've tried your hand at more genres than any of us, fiction and nonfiction, plays, murder mysteries, movie screenplays, blogs, and newspaper stories, of course, ranging from mental health to parenting to education. You've had a play performed at UC Davis and many, many articles published in the Washington Post. Coming, as you did, out of the acting profession, which you studied at Northwestern and at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival, as well as in the theater world of New York City, I'm wondering, what was it like for you to transition from acting to writing? What traits did acting bring that helped you in writing, and what made it more difficult?
0: Um, Well, that's a good question, Dad. I think think the thing that connects acting and theater with other forms of writing is this interest in the human condition. Mm-hmm. And that's an expression that you hear a lot when you're studying uh acting. But I think what's also interesting is so much of my study was um the study of character, characterizations, relationships, um, and the text or the drama that you are uh performing. So, in some ways, and maybe this is, this would have been a, a red flag I could have noticed earlier in my career. But I was always interested in that part of the career uh, the the investigation of the story itself, the playwright, the words, mm-hmm. and then the idea of these characters who spoke those words, living in situations that are so intense because you know the sort of the story about a play is they don't happen on ordinary days and a good play is in a sense the essential parts of a story are are what are brought to the fore not the sort of bread and butter parts of daily life so in a sense i didn't think of the transition as a, as a big transition it just seemed to be a um, a shifting of of how to express some of those same themes And where to express them. I guess the biggest Mm -hmm. shift uh, from a practical point of view isn't just the industry, but my place in it, which would be instead of standing on stage, I want to write the words that others say. Or in the case of journalism, uh, you know, the idea of interviewing characters as opposed to portraying them. And there's a bit of a difference there.
1: Yeah. When you say red flag, do you mean that maybe that was a hint that you were going but didn't even know it yet?
0: I think so. I mean, I, I know that I used to keep acting journals and we would have to keep a daily diary and my theater teacher at Northwestern pretty much said you're in the wrong business. Uh, you should be writing. Now, the thing he didn't do though, is walk me down the aisle or the hall and take me to the writing department. It, it was the kind of program where, um, you had to, f- I thought you had to focus on a discipline, even though it wasn't a conservatory, and I don't think I sort of kept my options open in the way that some of my peers did, and that I certainly wasn't uh, aware of certain opportunities I wish I, I had been then. And I think a certain type of teacher perhaps would would have, um, uh, in a sense, not opened doors to that, but suggested certain doors.
1: Because of that acting background, was writing plays or visualizing the arc of a play the most natural form of writing for you?
0: Well, I think I still have some work to do in terms of the arc of the play uh, and the mm. structure because I think my first uh, window into a story is usually the situation Um people in a dilemma and you know they sort of say like it's it's easy to get the person in a dilemma the hard thing is getting them out of it <laughs> and keeping the interest yeah. uh in a sense uh
1: that's where most mm-hmm. plays and movies and even books fail at yeah. like that getting them out of the dilemma. The yes
0: end. but i think um i think that i am interested in the characters and the situations they're in and that part well I guess I could put it this way. I never write a character that I wouldn't want to play or be uh, feel good about giving an actor to play. Even if it's a small part, they they have to have something that makes them feel like they've got something to give to that part and to the performance. So I do think in that sense, I put myself in the position of the people who will be speaking these words. And I want to give um, each character something not just special, but something um, dynamic. And probably that's the the biggest uh, carryover from having been the person on the other side.
1: You know, I'm so trained in journalism and the ink in my blood, uh, literally, uh, that the hardest part of a play for me is is Mm -hmm. reading it. I can see it on stage, but when I'm reading it, I can't quite visualize it. You have to be really good at reading plays to do that, I think. And tell me, how do you read a play?
0: Well, that's a good point. And, you know, I think people used to read plays for, for entertainment. Um, you know, George Bernard Shaw plays, I think, were meant to be read as much as performed. And plays used to have a lot more stage directions. Um, he's guilty of writing way too many stage directions, um, in fact. uh uh-huh there's an element of wanting to control the reader's experience in that sense. And I think a modern play now is leaner and uh, far fewer stage directions. Although I I tend to lean on the, <laughs> the other side. Um, so the way to read a play, I think the fundamental thing is to know, going into it, that every character has a subjective point of view. They all want something. And to not shy away from the idea that their subtext, obviously, then, is often what they want, not what they say. Um, it's underneath the words. So if you read a play thinking that everybody wants something, then you start to take one scene at a time and look for motivations and um and also know that any clue that's been dropped has been dropped very specifically. you don't ignore you know the whole the joke about if there's a you know gun on stage in act one it'll be used by Act three, but it's also true in terms of what people say to each other, and if they bring something up from the past that might be a joke, there'll probably be a reason for that later on. so you're sort of a detective when you read the play, and then the check yes one theory, yes, right? and then I think the other thing um. You know, there was this uh, class at Northwestern and there's a famous book called Backwards and Forwards. And the idea is you could look at a good play and start at the end and trace every action and reaction and see um, them unfold. Uh, so in a sense, it's almost like a you could think of dominoes and sort of going backwards from that. So you look for cause and effect. Um, and then I think... The other thing is to imagine in your head how you would stage it. So where where are the people? When would they cross? How much distance is between them? You know, all those things that I think are fun. Um, that, yeah, you are visualizing in a sense a game of chess, right? I mean, it's unfolding uh, with moving pieces. Uh, so maybe the other factor is to just read them so much that it is, you know, um, something (laughs) you're, you're used to having to, um, scrutinize. And that was the one thing I know coming out of my theater program in Texas, uh, Mr. Priest had us read plays a lot and he really valued that. And I remember going to other places, camps or eventually college and, and thinking, I've, I've basically already read the syllabus. I mean, he had us read so many
1: plays. A yes. wonderful teacher. Um, you know, also the the actor is a part of that as well. You know, I, I'm thinking about my own experience when they turned um, my Lombardi book into a play. And when I was reading the script of the play, uh, sometimes I didn't see what, Humor was in it, um, and what the great actress uh, Judith Light could bring to, to some of the scenes that, that to me seemed sort of prosaic, but when she brought them to life, they just exploded with, with uh, pathos and humor. Um, so that, that's the part, I guess, that's the most difficult for me, and, and that's where the, uh, I guess, the creativity and the synergy between the playwright and the actors come in.
0: That's a good point, Dad. I guess that would be the idea of imagining that each character is this fully embodied person with a point of view and a personality. And Hmm. um, so that when their lines are spoken, it's a different voice than the next character who's speaking. And maybe in a sense, it's kind of switching parts so quickly when you read the play that that you have to do. And I think some plays are just harder to read than others. I've never really clicked with the Greek plays. (laughs) I could read them and, <laughs> and not get a sense of, of, of some of the drama. Yeah. Or the characters. Yeah, and, or yeah, the characters. Yeah,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. How do you go about just conceiving a, take, a play? Take for instance, um, you know, some of, some of the plays that you've written, do you go from the idea to the theme, to the drama, to the character or do they all sort of come uh, organically or do you move from one to the other? How, how does that work?
0: Well, it's a good question. And I, have just been reading um, this wonderful book and its interviews with great playwrights who are also teachers in MFA programs or undergrad programs. And it's like the who's who of American drama. And the one thing that I have taken from it that I find encouraging and also terrifying is that nobody agrees. (laughs) They all have different strategies for teaching and for writing, it seems. And some of them... um, uh, you know, really um, focus on finding the character first, almost in the sense of if you were to close your eyes, you could touch their face. You would feel them that intimately. Um, and I wouldn't say the others are, are, are uh, extremely focused on structure, but there might be more of, of that sense. Um, and so... I guess what I mean by bringing this up is that my process is a little messy. And sometimes I think um, my main um, skill to hone is this, this sense of maybe knowing where I'm going before I start. But I have to say that the way I start usually is um, with characters who, in a sense, just come into my head and a situation and I really want to put their words on on paper. And so I start writing them. And then to some extent, I discover as I'm going a little bit more about what it is they're saying. And, and I've gotten better at interviewing my characters first a little bit longer. <laughs> like making them sit in the room just a little longer before I agree to start writing what they want to tell me. But uh, I still feel... Um, that to some extent, I like to keep things loose in the beginning. Um, And so right now, in fact, I'm working on the next section of my play, Sustain Me. That's the one that was done at UC Davis this fall. And I'm adding, um, in a sense, the next section of it. um, It's three sort of discrete um, vignettes.
1: Go back and describe the first section that you've already had performed and how that sort of came to you, it's in a yoga studio with which you're quite familiar, but how did you take it from there?
0: Well, um, I knew I wanted to write a play about this sort of hunger people have to find um, not just meaning in life, but the ability to sustain themselves through the the you know, the the search for that meaning or the ability to sustain yourself through heartbreak and so forth. And so having done yoga for 20 years, I always thought there was this sort of I- irony that we are in this room and we are all trying to find or practice yoga and peace. And there will be people who do things that just drive you just crazy. And one of them to me is when someone comes in and they snap their yoga mat loudly, and they just, it cracks through this room of serenity. And usually it's the person who comes in late, you know, jiggling their car keys and turning their cell phone off, and then they snap their mat. And everyone just sits there, you know, and you try to use it as a learning experience and not react, but it pisses me off. And so I had that. And, and I thought of a character sort of diligently doing what it is that you're, you know, supposed to be doing and and coming up against some conflicts. Um, but then I had at the same time, so this play is part in a yoga studio, and it's partly at a CSA farm stand or community sustained agriculture. And again, I saw um when I would go there in my own life, this uh, hypocrisy of, of, you know, we are good people, we are supporting our local farmer, and we're eating organic food, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And you would see people basically, just trying to get as many tomatoes as possible with their, you know, whatever share they had, or just get that better piece of kale, you know, and it was like this competitiveness at the farm stand. And I, again, it just, it sort of hurt my brain. And I was thinking about the young man who worked there, who I started talking to. And you, he was friendly, but scruffy, you know, scrappy guy, you know, uh, never clean shaven. And he'd check you out at the, you know, after you got your vegetables. And I would start talking to him. And it turned out he was applying to school, graduate school in philosophy. And then I started talking to him some more and he started telling me about how he could do all the math in his head, but that some lady started yelling at him because she said she was a math teacher and that she knew how much all her vegetables weighed and he was wrong. And, and so they got at it, you know, and I just thought, Oh my gosh, people are crazy. And here we are, um, at the farm stand and people are acting like this. So another thing that interested me was the sense of a generation that's a little younger than my own, that is just starting to um, emerge as adults, and and in a sense, I think that the it's a harder hit when you're that age and you realize the world is a little bit more screwed up than you thought it was. And so, the characters are in their mid twenties, um, and and they are, you know, on the yoga path at the CSA. And the way I set it up, it's um, I think it's theatrical because they are in separate spaces, but the audience comes to realize that they're very much connected. And in any case, the the, the play kind of goes through some, some things where both hit the bottom and they um, have to crawl out from under that. And one of the themes of it is that uh, I don't think we can fix the world, but we can be less lonely while we're where well, we're persisting through it. And so they find each other. Um, and so then the next section of the play, uh, which I want to stand independent from this first, uh, is middle age and two characters mm-hmm. going through, in a sense, what sustains you then. But this one is an unraveling. Um, and without giving too much away, uh, I'm, it begins with the um, wording of divorce, um, which is this unraveling of, of what used to sustain them, their marriage. So that's been really interesting um, because these characters are just slightly older than I am. And I was joking with my husband that I've been researching divorce and I have a lot of divorce documents in my office right now and that he should not take it personally or read into
1: it. I'm just... Well, for those who don't know, you used to be researching ways to yes, poison yes. people. Yes, and right? I still have <laughs> lots of books on poisons. But
0: yes, so he's—I <laughs> just gave him the the heads up that um, I'm I'm researching. Uh, actually, the language is beautiful. I mean, it's both lawyerly and and awful and and poetic. You know, uh, the divorce document itself. So, I do think that one thing I've always loved in theater is. This use of, um, either historical events or adaptation of, um, you know, a source, a primary source into something theatrical. And so for me with this play, as I've done with some others, I like to do a lot of research, um, and weave that in to the fiction.
1: And then the third section, which you have.
0: Yes. So the third section will be a later stage of life. And that is two sisters. Um, and it's, and it's what sustains mm-hmm. you in your late seventies, early eighties. And that is the, the mind and memory. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a. I don't want to say too much, but one sister's mind is unraveling and the other one is fiercely holding on and and the contrast in those styles in terms of what you carry with you when everything else is falling away.
1: So making that transition from the creative world of playwriting to uh, nonfiction writing, I guess the first uh, genre you... Went into with that was your blog, uh, Lunchbox Mom, uh, in a serious way. Uh, so, or um, not?
0: Well, I did spend a couple of years uh, going back to school for journalism at uh, NYU. Um, right. And then I worked at CBS News 48 Hours. So I would say that was the transition from.
1: Uh, I'll give you that, even though TV to me is. Not quite, but yes, that was definitely n- not. Oh, that's a
0: Freudian but. issue you have then, isn't it, Dad? That whole segue I did. Because I, I worked my tail off going to classes no, 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 at night no. and summer no, no. and, yeah. I
1: never thought less of you for that. <laughs> I'm just kidding, actually. It's just after uh, watching uh, the network's uh report every night on things that were in the New York Times and the Washington Post day yes. after day. Yes. Uh, fair
0: enough, fair enough.
1: That. Anyway, so let's get to Lunchbox, Mom, after your CBS okay. uh, endeavor. Unless mm-hmm. you think there was something in that those couple of years that were formative, I'd be very interested in that. Uh, well... And I guess there was, yes, um, since 9-11 during that period.
0: Yeah. Um, well, to some extent even if it's, okay, I'll get, grant you the writing is very, very different. But um, one of the things that I did, most most of what I did um, was research story ideas and create essentially um, a like the Bible of everything about that story, every person involved. I would do the initial mm-hmm. interviews of them. I researched the Theme. So, if we did a story, for example, on um, houseboats that emitted the carbon monoxide into the water, and there's this very dangerous back section underwater of the houseboat that if you're swimming in, you can, you know, if it, you could die, um, you know, I would be the one to interview the, the people who were involved in that particular issue first and type up the interview and research the story and then um, every aspect of that and then i would hand that off to the producer who would eventually interview them on camera but
1: you know that so you did the real reporting yeah. Yeah, that's you know I, I i should not have diminished mm-hmm. that it's that's the essence of what we Yeah
0: did. and i think back then i mean i literally remember a 911 at cbs having to call someone and ask them if they could fax a copy of the phone book page that might list the number for the gym that one of the suspected mm, terrorists uh, might have worked out at. I mean, it was n- the Internet was uh-huh. not our, you know, the go to for everything. It was <laughs> I think it was at that point not yes. as reliable. And I don't even know if everything was working properly, but but it was that level of kind of like, can you copy a phone book and fax it? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. Um,
1: so the, the, the fundamentals of of journalism were really uh, shaped by. Uh, going back to school and that work at C, I I think
0: so. And also. Yeah. Um, and growing up. Right. It, to some yes, extent.
1: absolutely. <laughs> yeah, a little bit there, too. It, it, it was yes. in your blood. Yes. <laughs> um, but let's get to Lunchbox, Mom. I, um, I love the, the precede you wrote for that, where you said, uh, uh, the stories in a mother's head are not between her and the outside world, but between what she was and what she had become. Uh, was that sort of the driving? I mean, I know that the the uh, essays you wrote have so many different characteristics to them. A lot of them are really funny. Some of them are very profound. Um, some of them are philosophical, um, but they all sort of revolve around that notion inside your head of being uh, a mother, right? Yeah.
0: So I started Lunchbox Mom. I think when Ava, my youngest, was not sleeping. You know, um, Uh and I was pretty much going crazy, I think, Um, sleep deprived and at home. And uh, I also think that I did not grow up thinking much about what it would be like to have children or being a mother. And so when it all uh, happened, it was, there was this, um, in a sense, this realization that this is my life. This is day-to-day what I am doing. And I didn't mm. prepare for it. No one really can. And so I saw mm. all of it as... Uh, something new to understand and figure out and to also try to figure out how much of this is me experiencing it and how much of this is the society telling me this is what I'm experiencing. And I think that's really the rub Mm -hmm. that I started to investigate, which was that so many Mm -hmm. people are telling you what you're experiencing and what motherhood is. And since I did not have my own understanding of what it was, I kept asking, well, what is this it or is it not it? And who, who can hmm. tell me? Um, so it was always puzzling through that, you know, and I think that's like the, the fir- one of the first ones I wrote was about yeah, my minivan because God, I never wanted a minivan, but it's, it was
1: <laughs> the title my was minivan. Like minivan. Yes. Cause
0: I hated my minivan and I loved it at the same time. I mean, it was the perfect uh-huh. car uh-huh. and uh, the girls were sad when I got rid of it, you know? Um, so the, and that's a silly one, but then, you know, later I did the one on the Tylenol that was contaminated and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what you're giving your kid when they're sick. And then you find out it's been recalled. And those are troubling questions or, um, the vaccine when I never personally doubted giving vaccines, but the HPV vaccine was new when Heidi was, um, younger. And, and so I, for people who don't know, what is that? The vaccine? HPV vaccine is, is uh, now it's a two-dose vaccine that they usually give between 9 and 11-ish to boys and girls. And mm-hmm. um, HPV is a virus that is um, easily mm-hmm. transmitted, actually, and usually resolves itself. But it can lead to certain types of cancers, including cervical cancers um, or throat cancers mm-hmm. in men in particular. Um, and it's amazing that there's a vaccine for it. Um, But, um, because as with most things, when they're new, um, people try to sift through it and figure, figure out the pros and cons. Um, so I just, you know, personally was interested in it. And so I did a story on a blog on that. I would also, my, one of my Mm -hmm. favorites for that, um, was I would do um, <laughs> uh, a series of spoops on um, things the parenting magazines won't tell you. And I would do, um, you know, like the top 10 books of, of the, of the year and they were all ones that I had made up and, um, you know, little tricks it was always a spoof on the type of article you would read in a parenting magazine. Um, I had right. a lot of fun with that. And it was always scary because I never knew will my humor translate? Because otherwise people would just think I'm crazy <laughs> because, okay. I think it definitely yeah. translated.
1: I, I got, I have a lot of friends who told me they'd laugh out Yeah, about
0: I, my My favorite book was Bob the Builder has a heck of a lot of debt. And it was a kids' version of the subprime mortgage (laughs) crisis. (laughs) That that one I made up.
1: Yeah, it wasn't about. uh, (laughs) No, it was Bob the Builder.
0: Yeah. So, and for (laughs) listeners who don't know, I Um, I would do the blog, um, if you can believe it, almost obsessively uh, every week, and I would publish it either on a Sunday night or Monday night. And one time, I was working on it, and my computer died. And I really, mm-hmm. I made Tom go with me and buy a new computer that day so I could get the blog out. <laughs> I was so like, I'm, I mean, I wasn't being paid. I, I had no no editor. Uh-huh. I was responsible to no one except myself. But I I had my own uh-huh. um, schedule and I stuck to it.
1: <laughs> well, good for you. That's yeah. what writing's all about. That self, yes. self-reliance self yes. and discipline. Um. One of the, um, of course, you also wrote about the school shootings, which uh, for any parent in of your generation has to just be such a, a difficult, uh, mind-blowing experience to even have to think about with your own kids and with everybody else.
0: Yes. And I, you know, there are two strong memories I have with that. One is Columbine. I remember being home and seeing it unfold on TV mm-hmm. and knowing that a friend from college was from Littleton, Colorado, and, and making that connection. And then I remember um, Sandy Hook, because you and mom were visiting, and I remember I had no idea it had happened, and it was That's in right. December, I think the 14th or 15th, and mm-hmm. you had an expression on your face that conveyed that something had happened, and you indicated it to me. And I you didn't even have to say what happened, and I knew um, that – the general um, uh, tenor of what it was. And I think the main thing at that point was not um, wanting Ava or Heidi to hear too much at home yet. Um, And Ava, for some reason, slept with me that night and she woke up the next morning and she said, I don't want to be shot. And I don't know, you know, Ava was um, probably in... Not even well, in first grade, she- I don't think. And so yeah. I remember asking her, do you mean like go to the doctor and get a shot? Because I think she must have, there was some reason she was sleeping with me that night. But but I also think kids mm-hmm. are sort of sensitive to something universal. And I'll never know what she really meant by that. Um,
1: well, she must have heard something.
0: I think, or maybe she, she felt some spiritual mm-hmm. connection. Yeah. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's true. She's yeah. a very spiritual so person. So,
0: I I know and I don't know what I could yeah. have said that would have added to anything that anyone else has already mm-hmm. said, but I think the biggest um thing for me is and how do kids manage fear and mm-hmm. risk in their daily lives? I mean, there's another issue of how can we as grown-ups tolerate this level of, um, violence, but, um, but in fact, even just recently, I'm part of the, um, Facebook page for the Washington post uh, on parenting group. And, uh, someone asked about how to talk to their middle schooler about the anxiety they feel about, uh, you know, the imminent, uh, conflict with Iran and and so forth. So there's always, um, Mm -hmm. as a, Parent or as a, as a grown up, those anxieties and, and so forth. Sure.
1: Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, you know, we'd practice yes. hiding under the desks for nuclear holocaust. Generally speaking, I sort of come to the conclusion that, that uh, young people handle uh, trauma. Uh, you know, they should never be faced with it in that way, but they tend to handle it at least as well as adults do in some ways. Um, one of the sort of the central theme of so much of your writing has to do with um, your perspective as a woman, as a feminist, um, as someone who's believed deeply in uh, gender equality, um, and you've written about you know in the Equal Rights Amendment. You've written about that in so many different ways. That important subject. Uh, which is never more timely than this year—the hundredth anniversary of the women seizing their inalienable right to vote, um, which was denied for so long. Um, what role does that issue play in sort of your your fiction and your nonfiction?
0: Well, in my uh, in my fiction, it plays a huge role. Um, the play that I. I think feel the most attached to that is still emerging is daughters of the amendment, the amendment being, um, the equal rights amendment. Um, and Mm -hmm. one of the things that things that interests me is not just this idea that, I mean, it's kind of, it's ridiculously simple that all people should have have equal rights, but, um, it's the fight about that. That is so, um, Uh, well, dramatic in a sense. It's the backlash to that proposition that is the curiosity to me. Um, And yet I have Mm -hmm. come to see that it comes down to people who hold power don't want to give it to other people. And then I see that relate to everything, Um, not just this, you know, women and men and, um, but, but, economically and racially um Mm -hmm. and i think that one of the things that interests me then in the fiction writing is um is that fight and the and the fight back um and trying to humanize the person for example in the play daughters of the amendment trying to humanize that figure of the 70 year old man who doesn't want to um Uh, live in a world in which he doesn't have the status that he grew up with. You know that not to um,
1: sympathize (laughs) I <laughs> yeah, right. right. Um,
0: so <laughs> exactly. Um but then, you know, I was also I had another idea, something that struck me. I guess as I live my life, I see situations in which this keeps playing out. And maybe that's the story. You know how they say everyone has one story and they tell it in different ways. It's this idea. I'm even now thinking about how women, have never had the opportunity to be the first to explore something. You know, I'm obsessed with the, the trips to mm-hmm. the Himalaya and the Karakoram and, and this idea of the, the great expeditions and so forth. And, and what a thrill that must have been, you know, and the idea too that these men are gone for like six months at a time, you know, like who's taking care of the kids? How, how are they having, how's mm-hmm. the home still functioning while they're off doing these things? And then they're the first to do it, you know, like there's something um, we will women will never have that. It's already gone. Everything's been explored to some extent. And I was thinking about what that really means. Um, And uh, even just being in Mexico recently, uh, the idea that obviously the the Mayan civilization wasn't discovered, but it was rediscovered, you know, in the 18. uh, what, 40s or 60s, and and this man for, um, who, who did that, you know, um, what would it have been like if a woman had been his um, right-hand woman, you know?
1: I don't know. You know, um, I'm, I've been thinking about that, too, because just uh, the other day uh, we went to the National Geographic uh, exhibition uh-huh. on Jane Goodall, And her uh, life with the chimpanzees in Tanzania, and she's one of those rare exceptions. She was the first to sort of explore the connections between uh, the closest relatives to humankind, and and was able to live with them for sixty years. She's still doing it in in her eighties. So, you know, but you are right. What was so striking about it was Mm -hmm. that that she did it. Um, and it shouldn't have been, you know, that way. That's sort of the striking exception. It should be the rule. But I think there are still, I disagree slightly, I think there are still many, many places to explore. And that, um, you know, in my optimistic moments, I think that, pretty soon uh, the gender won't be the decisive factor
0: about that. But well, I,
1: I, so far, you're right. I
0: also think it's it's not only, ex- I think it. I agree with you in the sense that there are still things to be explored and uncovered. But I think in terms of determining culture, mm. some of that has been done until we, in a sense, as it's starting to happen, uh, sort of free ourselves and start questioning um that the question the the culture that has been um, accepted or uh, dominated. I
1: certainly don't. I certainly hope and think that nobody's going to tell my granddaughter and my granddaughters and your daughters um, what they can or can't do. Uh, I hope. Heidi and Ava. Right.
0: <laughs> I know. I think though that yeah. well, that's a subject of another yeah. conversation. It sure um, is.
1: Yeah, it's a long yeah. one. Yeah.
0: Um, but you know the other. Um, thing i just uh on the flight home was looking at an old it was a couple months old national geographic um and it was all women and i i just cried i'd never seen an entire Mm. magazine Mm. of women in roles that are common roles but just usually men and and just that simplicity Mm -hmm. it it was striking enough that it made me cry so Mm.
1: wow wow yeah um you sort of touched on this earlier when you were talking about uh, your role at CBS, but one of the things that struck me in watching you um, in your newspaper work over the last several years is your fearlessness in finding people and interviewing them. You know, there, there are a lot of journalists who are introverts, and, and the, just placing that first phone call is the hardest part of their work. Um, did that come easy for you, and was that – Built out of your curiosity, your uh, your experience as an actor, or or is it that easy for you?
0: That's interesting because um, it's that is the most uh, fundamental part, I think, and it's so mm-hmm. um, it's fun too to try to to figure out who you can talk to, how to find them. How, you know, it's not always easy by any means. Um, mm-hmm. And I uh, I probably, I hadn't really thought about that until you and I started talking, but certainly at CBS, that was a lot of what I did. And um, mm-hmm. there was a certain confidence I could have by knowing that I would pick up the phone and say who I was and that I'm calling from CBS News 48 hours. Like that, that was a good uh-huh. um, intro, so to speak. And then yeah. I also think it helped that I, whatever I was doing, was essentially it was all the background so I couldn't ask the wrong question it was all it was all gathering mm-hmm. information and maybe I've translated that now when I do interviews for my articles I feel like these are the experts um, and mm-hmm. they will then lead me to the next expert or um, it's like gold it's it's everything that I'm looking for is is these interviews and then if I can find um, someone, for example, when I do the stories on um, health, and I did the big one mm. on the new treatments for migraines, finding people who experienced um, debilitating migraines who would talk to me, I felt like it's such a privilege that they'll share their story and they're willing to talk, and and knowing that readers will will read about you know their deepest pain. Um, Mm-hmm. I think of them as um, people that I have great care and respect for as they share that kind of story. And so maybe by approaching it that way, I don't have a fear about it. I just feel grateful, um, sort of, and I hope I put them at ease. And usually um, things go well. I've had a few people, as you have had even more, um, who've been hesitant to talk and um mm-hmm. Uh, the best I can do is send them my other stories, you know, and say this is the kind of work that I do, and take it from there.
1: That's a very good lesson on the the curiosity and the the uh, the fact that you want in interviewing you want the readers to understand what, the essence of someone else's work or thoughts mm-hmm. is really to open up uh, anyone to talk. Uh, in- do these, mm-hmm. but you also have done some that, that were incredibly uh, emotional and difficult. You know, you, when you did that story about your classmates at Northwestern who um, had died since since your time in college to talk to um, their spouses or relatives, uh, that's the hardest thing that journalists have to do. I think in many ways,
0: I think that's true, Dad, and I uh, think certainly at Forty Eight Hours. There were a lot of stories that involved, um, you know, really heartbreaking situations, and I talked to people, um, the the relatives and so forth, and so maybe I got a little bit of experience doing that. And then the story I did for the post on um, my twentieth college reunion, I was so grateful that that my editor said yes to that because it wasn't a strict health story, but it involved, um, a little bit of that idea of at 20 years out of college, what are the factors that could contribute to nine people in my class having passed away? And Mm -hmm. so there was an element of, of mortality and health and typical risk. You know, you could weave in some of the more wonky things, but essentially I had the list from my college, and then I took those names and I started doing research. And some of the um, classmates had died in an era. Uh, you know, if they died shortly after graduation, it was before there was a lot of paper trail online. Um, so it was harder to find certain things. But um, I think because so much time had passed for some of the deaths, I remember one mother in particular who was so um, just uh, just happy that someone called and asked her about her son and she mm-hmm. wanted to talk about him and she I think it was uh, it brought me a lot of joy to know that that in some way um, she knew that he wasn't forgotten that some you know, someone wanted to know more about his story. And so I think that that helped with a lot of the, the situations. Although I didn't tell the story of every single person because some families said they did not want to talk. And go. I yeah. let that right. go. Yeah.
1: That's such an important lesson for all young journalists is the, the notion that some people, want to talk, even if you think that you're intruding, that that it's important for them to tell that story or to honor somebody um, or to get at what they consider to be the truth of a very emotional situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you never know, but um, you always right. make the call. Um, one of the uh, – probably the most profound story that I've ever read that you wrote um, – was the bravely personal one about your own struggles with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, which had an enormous impact, um, not just with, with me and, and your mother, but with so many hundreds of people around this country and the world. Um, tell me about how you and why you decided to write that story for The Washington Post and how you went about it. And how difficult or not it was for you.
0: Well, it's interesting that you bring that one up. So i I wrote that story, and the interesting thing about writing it, and it was personal because it was about, in a sense, when I first felt the symptoms of OCD, and then decades of my life living through it, and and various things, mm-hmm. um, and. There was a time before I wrote it where even the idea of talking about some of those fears was uh, terrifying. And it's so funny to say that now, because Mm -hmm. now I generally can talk about it without uh, much trepidation. And I can even um, write a letter to my doctors if I need to, to just tell them what's up and what kind of patient I am and let them know ahead of time. And there was a time where being the same intelligent rash, sort of rational person, (laughs) the prospect of doing that would have made me want to run out of the room screaming. I wouldn't have wanted to confront it. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting how the monsters in our head can be so powerful Mm -hmm. and so dominating and they're, they're nothing more than thoughts. Um, And fears, so I would say that it took a couple of years of meeting with, you know, my therapist and being on the right dose of Zoloft and all that kind of thing to even get to the point where I could consider sitting in front of the computer and telling my own story. So the fact that I did, I, I I guess I say that only in the sense that I, um, if anyone else is going through something and they haven't been able to write about it, I, I. I completely understand, and I, I actually think uh, the ability to write about something painful is is um, doesn't come easily. So it it was a sign that I had made progress that I could articulate mm-hmm. the things. And the funniest thing is, I remember I was doing a lot of blogs for the post parenting section, but I hadn't written for the um you know the health section yet. And I remember seeing a query or some sort of thing for. Buzzfeed or some site, and it was like, it was like a write a story about like some mental illness you've overcome, or I don't know. It was a prompt, and it got my button gear, and so I wrote something, and I submitted mm-hmm. it, and I got rejected. <laughs> and I remember what? being sort of angry, like, ah, and I'm gonna keep writing this. Uh, yes, no, this. Or something. I can't even remember at this point. But it was, you know,
1: to to no, no.
0: Well, I think as a um, freelancer, true. like I would always like I subscribed to something that would send me like not. I don't even know anymore. Like queries or like whatever. Like to oh. opportunities, basically. Or I was always pitching yeah. to different people, and so I I remember thinking, okay, maybe it wasn't the best. Maybe I need to go back to this, and I. Revisited it, which again is a lesson in the sense of, um, yep. sometimes, uh, when something doesn't happen that you want to happen, it, it, it forces you to revisit it or try something else. And so I, I fleshed it out. I went deeper into it. I started writing it and I thought maybe this is something that could resonate with other parents because I, I do know that you, in an ideal world, want to know your own stuff so that you can negotiate Mm -hmm. not giving that or presenting that to your children. And a lot of my work was so that Heidi and Ava wouldn't um, sort of internalize some of the worries that I carried. And so I talked to Amy at the post and I said, you know, I'm not sure if this is right for you or maybe health. And I we kept it open and it was so wonderful that then I had the introduction um, to the health department and they were interested in the story and and um, I think the most wonderful thing that I have had in my career as a writer for the health section and parenting and Valerie at the answer sheet are editors who make such good suggestions and in a sense then I internalize that voice And I think it's made me a stronger writer for them. And so there were certain areas in the piece that Kathy um, asked me to expand on. and, And eventually it became the piece that it was, which I am proud of because I think it Resonated with other people um, in part because my experience of OCD wasn't stereotypical in the sense of the way often people are portrayed in movies or TV shows, which is funny, um, but not as um, perhaps not as common. It was I could still function through life on some level. I just closed off certain things, and I had a lot of struggle inside that nobody would know about, but that occupied way too much of my attention. Um, so in any case, the funniest thing is I, I submitted it. I knew it would run on a Tuesday and I completely forgot that it would go online online a few days before it would run in print <laughs> so that all of a sudden I'm just sitting at home and the most personal story I've ever written about myself is all over the internet and I'm getting emails and this and that and one of my former students posted it on Facebook and it's like all over the place I'm like wait I thought I had a few more days now it was like kind of being um <laughs> It's like jumping into water, you know, when it's freezing or something. You have to do it. I knew it was going to be public, but I just hadn't expected it quite that fast. Yep. But then I will say this forever. The pain of not talking about it is far greater than any pain or discomfort you might feel sharing your your own um struggles. Like it's just no comparison. Like I do not have any qualms about talking to anybody. In fact, I still get emails from people. Uh, there's a woman who's reached out to me who's also a journalist. Um, and I keep in touch with her. because She's going through treatment for OCD right now. And she found my article and she said, you're the only one I can talk to. And um, and I get um, I got I'll still get messages from people. So it ran in South Africa, in Miami, it, all over the place, that story got picked up. And um, and so it was surprising to me that it touched such a, a need, perhaps, um, and also um, really um, also a sign, I think, that we've come a long way when it comes to um, mental illness, and I've Done a lot of stories uh, interviewing psychologists, psychiatrists for other articles. And, and one of the things they always say is we've made such progress in the ability to treat these diseases, but we still have a long way to go in terms of getting everyone the treatment they need. There's this, it's a frustration that we can help. And yet we're not able to for a myriad of reasons. There aren't enough psych. Yeah,
1: mostly having to do with the government. And yes. The and also so,
0: there are not enough yeah, you psychiat. You know, it takes many years to become a psychiatrist mm, and you don't yeah. make as much money and there's a shortage mm-hmm. of them. And then, yes, it's expensive and it takes such time and that sort of thing.
1: Well, <clears throat> stories like that are why we write, you know, to try to uh, illuminate something and help mm-hmm. people that you don't know. Uh, connect to it in different ways. Um, Let's give credit to the three people you mentioned by first name. The first one was Amy. Amy Joyce,
0: uh, who runs the On Parenting. um, uh, It's not just a blog. It's a movement, I'd say, (laughs) uh, at the Washington Post. Uh Um, Yeah. Yeah,
1: The second Uh, was Valerie.
0: Strauss, who um, does the – answer sheet, uh, which is the blog on education. Uh, and, uh, the Lely, and the third is um, Kathy Laley, my editor at the um, health section. Um, and she works with Poo Shapiro, uh, and both of them are uh, really fabulous.
1: Mm-hmm. And three of the most popular uh, sections mm-hmm. in the Washington Post, really, that uh, have thousands and hundreds of thousands of readers around mm-hmm. not just the United States but the world um, so after writing so much for newspapers and writing plays at the same time, um, have you found that that the experiences translate to the other that your writing in general has improved in both ways and you've learned lessons from each or are they totally separate? Uh, Tracks you have to sort of use two. Different I think ways they're connected,
0: and I have, in a sense, really actually thought about that because I thought about how I use my time, where I put my energy, and what muscles I'm using. But the muscle of writing is the same muscle, and mm-hmm.
1: Um, mm-hmm.
0: and I also think that in a sense that I have learned something that I've applied to both playwriting and the articles, which is that a really good mentor can, in a sense, um, help you develop your own work in a way that isn't just about fixing the piece at hand, but building a skill. And I think that over the few years that I've been writing for Kathy, that she's taught me certain things that I've internalized and I can anticipate. And with the health section, I also had this great copy mm-hmm. editor who recently retired, but I've said before that it was like defending a dissertation. He would, he would pick apart so many different things in an article. I mean, I I would pull my hair out. I would go crazy practically, but it was so good to have someone like that who really was vetting anything I said against, can, you know, can you prove it? Where's this? Where's that? And don't, you n- never to make a generalization and so forth. And, and so eventually as I would write stories for them, I could almost, I would, I would know, well, this is going to get Question. So, how do I, you know, preempt that and how do I write it so that it's already that way? And um, also with the health section, certain ways of starting the stories in a way that would engage the reader and not getting too scientific upfront, you know, until perhaps later into the story. And then also with the plays, I've been working with Claudia Zelovansky, who is um, just a fabulous. Uh, Uh, Well, she's in everything. She's a director. She's a dramaturg. She's a teacher. um, And she's also um, really helped me develop, uh, in particular, Daughters of the Amendment. And she does that through asking me questions about what I intend for the scenes or intend for the character. And is that, am I conveying that? And will the audience experience it in that way? And she tries not to be prescriptive unless I beg her. <laughs> and then I'm like, just tell me what to do. But still, she doesn't want to do that. Um, and you've, you, you right. are actually, okay, fine. You're my first editor. And you never made it easy in the sense of necessarily fixing something for me you would tell me what needed work or what to go back and clear up um but i think that all of these people i've mentioned and especially you um have made it so that i improve and i know what it means to improve
1: you know, one of the things that I admire greatly about you is your um, the way in which you take uh, criticism is the wrong word, but suggestions. There, there's such an a, a individualistic aspect to writing that many writers don't take suggestions or directions well. And I think that I've always thought that because you were an actor first, and it's such a sort of natural part of acting is to be directed, that you're better at it than most writers. And that's really helped you along the way.
0: Well, you know, I, I think that's probably part of it. And I think um, that at the end of the day, well, you said one thing, too, when I was working. At the end with- of the day, don't you- That again. What? It's a cliche. Oh, okay. It's a cliche. See, as as my editor, well, I guess what I mean is when it comes down to it, it doesn't always. It's going to get cut if they want to cut it. You know what I mean? Like you told me, uh-huh. well, except you. And I know that you have a legend of of telling people you don't get cut, but the rest of us <laughs> do. And you told me early on, to you know, pick your battles with the copy editor, like just decide mm-hmm. what really matters. And that's liberating mm-hmm. to just almost say, you mm-hmm. know what? Not everything's worth fighting about in this. And yep. this, yep. I do think though, that theater is a collaborative art form mm-hmm. and that I am mm-hmm. quite happy to work in collaboration with other people and Mm -hmm. trust their judgment, um, especially with certain things that that's their bailiwick. Um, I am sort of deciding, though, that in playwriting, um, it is important to know how much you want to incorporate, if that makes sense, and probably much more so in um, fiction than in, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. newspaper writing. And so I am... Mm -hmm. Especially with daughters of the amendment, um, thinking about what I want to say, and you know, sort of that's it. <laughs> I I can take so much feedback right. before I, before I decide this is it. No, it's yeah.
1: yes, it, it has to be yours. Otherwise, it's meaningless Yes. In yeah. That sense. Um, and I'm glad that you uh, praised your uh, meticulous and. Uh, pain-in-the-butt-at-times uh, copy editor at The Post, because that's a dying art form, sadly, in the, the modern uh, social media world and the 24-hour news and everything. Uh, we're losing copy editors uh, left and right, and it's really affected the quality of writing in ways that um, most people don't appreciate. Wow. And so thank you for that. Um Sarah, you say I was your first editor. Um, What's your memory of that?
0: Well, Dad, I remember when I was in third grade, maybe fourth grade, and I was working on something for school. And I remember you said, you read it, and you said to me, you write as if English were not your first language. (laughs)
1: Oh, God.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I, I think uh, as I grew older, I realized what you meant by that. <laughs> and you, uh, I don't know if you would take your red grease pencil to my stuff, but you were tough. I mean, I think I literally was in elementary school when you said that. And so um, uh, later. I
1: feel terrible. <laughs> but, but you I'm know you deserve it. I, I i think I did say it. I can't deny it. See, a tendency it's tendency to be blunt with people who- <laughs> I <laughs> love and uh, anyway, more rationalization than that.
0: <laughs> yes, but it's it's ty- it's very plausible, right? I mean, I that's my memory, yep. and you wouldn't there's... you wouldn't doubt it. But then uh, later, I remember. Well, I think that you uh, would would give me feedback, and then I would go back and I would work, and you know, I did the yearbook and junior high and. Um, Uh, I think I liked to write and, and you were, um, helpful, but the biggest thing that you taught me was that writing is a discipline and you taught me that by, by showing me that, you know, I see you in your office every day, all day with a few breaks here or there. Um, it's just, it's work, it's daily. There's a, a routine to it. And I've always admired that in your, um, in your work and I've internalized it, I suppose, because the real way to write is to sit down and write. There's no other way to do it. And um,
1: Well, so I feel is- terrible about my first comment, but I can't deny it. And I would say beyond that, that I've always believed more in showing than telling and setting an example for people and trying to steer them um in a direction where they find their own selves and not mine. Um, But I would also say that uh, if I was your first editor and was somewhat more engaged with your um, stories when you're first starting to write them, particularly for the Washington Post, um, that, uh, you know, it's like anything else. There's a point where you see someone getting it and free and you let them go. And that's where I feel you are now. So I would say my involvement in your writing is uh, much less now than it was before because you found your own voice. You've you've internalized some of the lessons that the editors at The Post and I have uh, taught you. And you're doing it. So you don't need me in the way that you you might have earlier in your career. Mm -hmm. And that makes me feel great. Sarah, I know that that you you love the process of research. You did that when you were an actor. One of your favorite parts was the rehearsal and studying the character that you did. And interviewing is only one part of that. When you're when you're writing uh, plays or nonfiction, um, what what is your research process like? And and you know, with me, it was uh, my first lesson was go there. I'm sure you've done that too. But tell me about the full range of sort of your researching before you write?
0: Well, I think that it does depend on on what I'm working on. For example, um, for the plays, I'm about to do um, another play that uh, involves a scene that's at a casino. And I am already trying to convince my husband uh, that we need to go to Atlantic City together. That
1: will not be too
0: hard. (laughs) No, it won't be. I mean, I may need to bring a lot of Purell and hand wipes, but uh, (laughs) we'll make it work.
1: (laughs) Since you're married to a game theory uh, guy from Princeton, I think that he sort of... Exactly.
0: Right. So (laughs) in the sense of that type of thing, uh, if I can go there as you go there, I would... I try um, when I'm working on the articles for the Post, There are certain limitations that I think it's fair to say that I would have that. Sure. That when you're doing a six week series, you know, and you're on the road, it's it's different. Um, mm-hmm. But um, when I did the story on Doctor Radio, Sirius XM Channel 110, <laughs> which I do listen to, um, but I was interested in in a sense the day uh, a day in the life of that studio and. It's situated in a hospital, the doctors come and go, they do a handoff from one uh, show to the next, they've got a producer in there taking calls. And so when I pitched the idea, um, part of it was that I would spend the entire day at the Dr. Radio Studio, which is at NYU Langone um, in New York City. And so I went there, I, I took a really early train and uh, walked to the hospital and I sat in the studio with the doctors and producers for the entire day and got a sense of the rhythm of that place and the, the rapport of the doctors with their producers when they weren't on air and, um, you know, who stopped by. Um, it was just mm-hmm. a very um, interesting way of doing that story. And I knew, as I knew because of you, that the only way I could do it was to sort of be a fly on the wall, if I can use that cliche, uh, for the entire day. I'll
1: let you. Okay, this time. thank you. Yes. yes, there's no other better yes. one. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Sarah, when you wrote the first act of this play, um, it seems to me that you weren't thinking of it necessarily as a first act; that it was the play itself, because it was within the. Uh, Parameters of what they were expecting at UC Davis for it, um, and then, am I right about that? And that, and you decided that it could expand into a three-part look at the same subject from different generational perspectives. And what is that like to to, to deal with a, um, a a a play that that is in essence. Um, already done but not done, and then then adding new parts to it later. Was that more difficult? How is that different from just writing the first act?
0: Well, that's a good question, Dad. I think one of the things about plays that maybe not everyone um, realizes is that they're often – Developed through what some people refer to as development hell, um, <laughs> which in a sense <laughs> describes the nature of it, which is that you write a play mm-hmm. and then maybe it gets a reading, maybe it gets a workshop, then you get feedback, then you keep working on it, then maybe it gets another reading and workshop. And it's like this constant tugging towards a goal, which would be to be produced, you know, and then to be um, mm-hmm. so... Um, so finished, let's say, that it could be produced elsewhere without your involvement. You know, it has a life of its own. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's messy getting there. And so when I wrote this play, Sustain Me, it was for a very specific developmental um, festival in California. And the theme was literally sustainable theater and what that means to the playwright, how you can interpret it. And one of the things that I Really liked about that was sustainable theater to me means it sustains the artist who's doing it, not just that it is, um, you know, a lean production budget and it doesn't involve a tremendous amount of waste producing it. Uh, So I wrote a play that I thought actors could take on the road, that it would sustain them creatively even if they were between gigs they could do it they could produce it themselves on a shoestring budget you know it could be performed in a yoga studio or at a CSA or in a black box and my roommate at this festival who's a playwright she's like you know sarah if you want this to be produced in a you know in a like a sit down theater you got to make it longer and it was just a practical note and i mm-hmm. thought about that and i thought i could do that and at the same time sort of be true to this idea that the piece itself is sustainable and nimble. If I created the next section as something that lived on its own, that was related to the first section, but not dependent on it. And in my mind, I'm thinking of these three sections as interchange, like you could do any of them first, any of them last, the order I I want it to be flexible that way, like moving pieces. You could do the first and the last piece or the, you know, it, it would be beautiful to me if it could live in a way that was that dynamic. The way I'm going to write it and the way I'm thinking of it is that it would be the first part, the second part, and the third part in that order and, and so forth. But one of the things I want to remove from this particular play is the sense that um, it's not flexible. I want it to be flexible and sust- in that sense, to me, that means it's, it can sustain the artists to perform it. So the first um, section has the 20 something characters. The second section has the people in their mid fifties and the third would have two women in their seventies. Actors can play older or what, you know, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, to me, it was important to have a lot of um, uh, flexibility um, with the characters, but also, you know, I had to make a decision. Do I want the two older characters to be two sisters or two brothers? And in my mind, I'm thinking um, I want to write some more interesting parts for women. Um, so that's a factor in, in what I'm thinking Uh and I think that for me at this stage, I am trying to become more, uh, I guess, deliberate about what I'm putting on the page and how that could be uh, produced and if it can be produced in a way that um, is uh, perhaps a little less daunting than my my big play that I'm still, uh, uh, that I love, mm. but I know has uh, some really big requirements, like a moving wall of sedimentary rock in Daughters of the Amendment. Like, to be honest, that's going to require quite a budget. So can I write a play that could be produced yeah. on a shoestring? And the answer is yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> One other thing that, that uh, companies consider when they're producing a play is the number yes, of actors exactly. required, right? So this one, I imagine, could be somewhat flexible. The maximum would be six, mm-hmm. but it could be maybe right. Even it could four, be, right? Yeah. The women it read. could
0: be, exactly. And, you know, I think when you see a play that's not a musical with a cast over, you know, six or eight, it feels like such a luxury. And I still love mm-hmm. those types of plays, but they're expensive. And even now when mm-hmm. I'm doing... So one of the things that I have been doing with Daughters of the Amendment is do readings in New York with Claudia and then we bring in actors and so I can hear it. And finding nine actors (laughs) is is harder than finding four. So you start to see and then, you know, Mm -hmm. paying nine, you know, everything increases with the large cast. And we don't live in an era in which in which that is done a lot.
1: So uh, going back to sort of uh, the personal aspects of writing, you are the mother of two wonderful young women, Mm -hmm. uh, a preteen and a teen, Uh, wonderful, but very time consuming, no doubt. Uh, How do you find the time to write? And when do you write? And what's your routine?
0: It's funny you say that because today as we tape this it's their first bit first day back at school and they walked out of the okay. door at 7:20 and I went upstairs and sat at my computer and it was like that the sky cleared. I felt fantastic. I was like they are out of the house. Yay. Uh-huh. And I sat down and I started writing the um the the section of the play that I'd been Uh, brewing over for the last month. uh, And it just spilled out. I was just on a roll. And I wrote and Mm -hmm. I not only uh, like to write in the morning early, but I like to write in a quiet house, even if they were home sleeping, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be the same. I like an empty house. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think because I know that for me, the day essentially ends at three o'clock in terms of my ability to get my own work done that I, I just sit and write and that's what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I try to go to yoga, which sounds very cushy, but it, uh, it's funny. I was reading that book on playwriting and Maria Irina Fornes would have her playwriting students do yoga. So that helped me think that it is in some ways (laughs) it justifies it it clears. Yes. Things come to me then it clears my brain. Mm -hmm. It, It is a, um, it's a form of warm up in this, in some ways, and so I will write after that as well. And then uh, around two thirty, I prepare to get them, and then the rest of the day is is essentially focused on them, and they. Recently, had to write a series of essays for some applications. And so Heidi was the one who had to write and write and write. And I would tell her when she was done, I would take a look and give some comments and she could rewrite. And that was an interesting... um, uh, It was an interesting experience. Um,
1: She has ink in her
0: blood too. Yeah, I think she does. Um, And so does Abe in very different ways.
1: Yeah, yes. Um, But
0: I think the routine for me um really is one thing that i've learned is to not um in a sense i used to think oh well when they're home they can do homework and i'll do my thing still and that caused a lot of mm-hmm. tension and um on my part you know are they quiet enough why do they need me this or that and mm-hmm. it's just been um simplified now where i say you know when they're at school that's my time when they're home um, I'm not going to try to do three things at once. I'm going to do the thing that's in front of me, which is is either them or their homework help or making dinner and and I'm okay with that. It also though is time where I may be thinking about what I want to write or <laughs> coming up with um, more scenarios that that need a play
1: well, if you're like your uh father your um Thinking about writing at various odd times, including in your sleep and when you're driving. And, yes, um, I don't know if Tom turns to you and says, "What what part of the play are you writing <laughs> <in> now?" But, <laughs> uh, um, I've been there. But describe your office for the listeners. Uh, you know, I think there is a difference between a nonfiction office and a playwriting office, but you're both. So, what 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 is ah, your office yes. like?
0: Well, I finally got a desk that's big enough to hold all my notebooks Uh um, and it faces a window and I look out into um, a wooded area and this morning there was still snow on the pine trees and I saw a family of deer walking in the back Uh and I thought, I am so lucky that I can look out and see this. So even though I'm in New Jersey, I'm in a very, um, I think, rural little neighborhood Mm -hmm. and then I have bookcases And I have – I guess I'm sentimental about them. I I have so many plays Mm. still in my bookcases that I may or may not read again, but I can't part with. And I have a collection of Shakespeare, um, the Yale edition, each little um, book in its own little blue-bound cover. I have – a couple of shelves where I keep books that are inspiration for what I want to write next in terms of plays Mm -hmm. and things. And then I have um, notebooks that have, or binders, I should say that have copies of my scripts. Mm -hmm. And I have some of your books in my office right now. Some are downstairs and some are up here, but I, um, I often need to refer to them for something that you and I are working on. And so I have them up here and I have my dog and he's a uh, constant in my office. Uh, is that
1: right? He, well, all day when the girls yeah. are gone, he's with you.
0: Yeah.
1: Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, he is. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, yes. So. Yeah. Well, Sarah, it's been a joy to talk with you about this. And uh, I'm very, very uh, proud that you're, continuing the tradition of ink in our blood.
0: You've just listened to an episode of the David Marinus Ink in Our Blood podcast. We hope you'll subscribe to the Ink in Our Blood podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcast service you prefer. If you loved it, we'd love it if you left a rating or review. Ink in Our Blood is produced by metamorphosis.agency, with creative direction by Monica Ryan, and strategy and technical production by Jeremy Ryan. Music is by the legendary Ben Sidron. I'm your host, Sarah Marinus-Vandershaft. Thank you for listening. I made my way to the back
1: nine. They call me the Iron Man. Watching out for the sand traps. Stating my plan Out on the back